before we turn to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord uh, for us this day, I want to draw your attentions to uh, something that we've been doing. I hope that you've been making use of these uh, the sheet that we've been providing you for sermon notes, but also that you've been spending some time reading over uh, the catechism questions that we've been providing. And you will see this day the Westminster Larger Catechism question 142, what particular sins does the Eighth Commandment forbid? There are a lot of the commandments that we might look at and at first glance say, oh, well, I never do that. 90% of evangelical Christians say that they never break the Eighth Commandment. 90%. I encourage you to spend some time meditating on the Westminster Larger Catechism to see the various ways that we are indeed breaking the commandment so that uh, the Lord uh, might use that to draw us to himself as we run to the cross And also as we see what the Lord calls us to as his people, to be his holy people. So now let us uh, pray together as we prepare ourselves to hear his word read and proclaimed. Lord God, as we meditate on scripture this day, send us your Holy Spirit. Breathe out this, your holy, inerrant, infallible word that we might rightly hear and obey. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Our scripture reading is Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Let us read God's word together out loud. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think that I've shared with all of you before that I had a classics professor at Mississippi State who used to ask my Latin class every time we were gathered, what is the aim of a college education? And we would all respond in unison, the grasp of the obvious. As we now turn our attention to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. It is wise to start with the obvious a biblical understanding about privately owned property. And I don't think that any of you will be shocked when I say that private property ownership has biblical warrant. The Old Testament assumes the legitimacy of private property ownership as well as the necessity of it. Otherwise, this commandment makes very little sense. For if there is no privately owned property... If what is yours is mine and what is mine is yours, then a commandment not to steal would be unnecessary and meaningless. And please don't think that I'm belittling you by starting with what should be obvious. I start there because perhaps too often we skip over the obvious, but when we rush past the foundations, we end up building a shaky and unstable structure. I think that this was the wisdom my professor was getting at with my class. But we also need to start with the obvious in this case in particular because there has been a very real challenge within our culture and even within the church concerning private property. There are some who make a claim that the early church was socialist or communist in nature and that Christians can and should hold this understanding. This claim is based primarily on a reading of Acts 2, where it says that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. If we were to take these verses in isolation, it seems to be presenting a view that property should be held by the community. But the abolition of property... Private property is not commanded or even implied here in these verses. The book of Acts will make clear that what is given is given freely and without compulsion. For as we move through Acts, we see that Christians are meeting in each other's homes, implying that they personally own homes. We are also introduced to people like Lydia, who it is implied had great personal wealth and who began giving out of her abundance willfully, to the advancement of God's kingdom. And as we move out of Acts through the rest of the New Testament, we will see this again and again of individuals like Phoebe and churches like those in Corinth and Philippi giving freely of themselves. And we hear the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians stressing the importance of voluntary, cheerful, and generous giving and discouraging giving under compulsion. We see this as well with Peter, who discourages giving of ourselves under compulsion in 1 Peter 5, and James and John, who both encourage giving generously out of our abundance to those who have little. Again, this is sharing that is free of coercion. Therefore, even as we are called to give ourselves away, it is always giving that is done freely and willfully. There is no demand 
or command to relinquish our personal property as a whole to the community. And it seems odd to even have to point that out, but more and more our culture seems to be moving away from the idea that privately held property is a God-ordained right and responsibility. Instead, people are becoming convinced that it is a good thing for people to be forced to surrender large portions of what they have legally acquired or earned for what has been determined is the good of all. But this is neither biblical wisdom nor counsel. And I don't want to digress into a lesson on economic systems, so I will simply say that the Bible gives legitimacy to individuals having the freedom to create produce and sell goods and services, as well as to own private property and manage personal wealth. Now, even as I say that, I want to clarify something very important to this eighth commandment, because again, we want to get a strong biblical foundation established. Our American understanding of owning property and managing wealth is not necessarily in accordance with a biblical understanding, and it might be quite the opposite. You see, a worldly, according to a worldly understanding, my property and wealth belong entirely and only to me. They are owned by me and are mine to dispose of as I wish. It is my money, my goods, my legal rights, my titles. However... A biblical worldview says that what I possess has been graciously given to me by God, whether or not I worked hard to acquire it, and it has been entrusted to me as its steward. So while I do have possession of it, I possess it only as one who is entrusted with its care and proper use. God then gives me resources that I'm called to manage to care for myself and my family, but also to care for my neighbor. And Pastor John will be discussing this in length next Sunday because this is a very important piece of the Eighth Commandment. But for now, it's important that we understand why this sets the foundation for the Eighth Commandment. Even as the Eighth Commandment assumes a right of ownership, we must understand that we are commanded not to steal because we are not to take that which God has given and entrusted to someone else. Therefore, stealing is not simply sinning against our neighbor. It is also sinning against God. But not simply because it is disobeying God's commandment to love our neighbor. At an even more basic level, it is sinning against God because it is taking something that belongs first and foremost to the Lord himself. So now we have our foundation. The Bible not only allows but acknowledges as a God-given right privately owned property. We also learn from scripture that all we have belongs first and foremost to the Lord. And as stewards of these belongings, then we are not only to care wisely for what has been given to us, but we are also not to take that which has been entrusted to another by the Lord. Now, let's get to the meat and potatoes of the commandment. Again, we can begin with the obvious. As one scholar notes, the Hebrew word for stealing covers all conventional types of theft. Burglary, breaking into a home or building to commit theft. Robbery, taking property directly from another using violence or intimidation. Larceny, taking something without permission and not returning it. Hijacking, 
using force to take goods in transit or seizing control of a bus, truck, plane, etc. Shoplifting, taking items from a store during business hours without paying for them. Pickpocketing, purse snatching. We know all of these things, right? We know that these are all included in Scripture's command to us not to steal from our neighbors. And I hope that none of us would willingly do any of these things, at least not knowingly and intentionally. I remember being in Toys R Us a few years ago with Judah and Kendi before Joshua came along, and we were standing in the checkout line uh, waiting to purchase something for the girls. And Elizabeth's parents were with us as well. We're also purchasing something for the girls. And as we waited, of course, the girls were picking up all of the toys and candy that the stores love to put at toddler level at the checkout. It is genius marketing. Anyhow, we made our purchase and then we waited, bags in hand, for the few minutes it took for Elizabeth's parents to make their purchase. And then we left the store. We got in the car and we drove away. Halfway home, the kids were asking for their new court toys and as we began to pull the items out of our bag guess what surprise one of the girls had slipped an item from the checkout area into our bag while we waited on Elizabeth's parents we had violated the eighth commandment by shoplifting so the following day I did what I believe any of you would have done I went back to the store and apologized and paid for the toy And the cashier was very gracious, and she thanked me for returning and paying for the toy. My point is not to show how righteous I am, but to say that any of us, I think, would recognize that what had happened was done by mistake and would seek to correct it. Hopefully, none of us would knowingly shoplift, just as we wouldn't break into someone's home or steal someone's purse or car. But the scholar continues. The term for stealing also covers a wide range of exotic and complex thefts, such as embezzlement, the fraudulent taking of money or other goods entrusted to one's care. There is extortion, getting money from someone by means of threats or uses, misuses of authority, and racketeering, obtaining money by illegal means. And here is where things begin to get a little murky. As with all sins, the sins that are not done as openly and obviously, the sins we can do in secret and seemingly justify are much more tempting and prevalent. While we might not go into a bank and rob it at gunpoint, we might still look for ways to take what is not ours in less obvious ways. And with staggering frequency, these types of white-collar crimes are occurring even among self-professed Christians. In one of the communities I lived in, I personally knew a very well-respected Christian man from a very well-respected family. He was a leader in his church and in the community. And from the outside, he seemed to be a very kind man with a gentle demeanor who seemed to care deeply for the least of these. He was involved in missions in his church. And his dental practice saw a good number of pediatric Medicaid patients. And then one day, on the front page of the paper, the story hit. The news, the truth was revealed. This man had committed $800,000 in Medicaid fraud by routinely billing for procedures that he had never done and were at the time unnecessary. 
His scam was uncovered when some of his patients tried to go have procedures done at other dental clinics that were supposedly already done at his. And when Medicaid began receiving requests to perform procedures they had already paid to have performed, they began investigating. And it all led back to this one dentist. And when confronted about his crime, he immediately confessed and stated that he and his family had developed a lifestyle that he, even as a very well-off dentist, had become unable to financially support. And so he started stealing. $800,000 taken at the expense of children who lived in poverty. And as shocking as it sounds, this is really just a drop in the bucket of the estimated $272 billion in fraud that happens annually in our healthcare system. And it is happening by some of the most well-respected in our communities. Theft is not just happening by the materially poor, although the reality is that they usually get stuck with much harsher penalties. It's being carried out by people like me. And you. And sadly, dearly beloved, we know the truth of this. And it might not be that we are stealing to the tune of $800,000. It might not be happening through something as obviously deceptive and illegal as insurance fraud, although insurance fraud is happening all the time with false claims or even by making exaggerations about what has been lost or how seriously one has been injured. But this commandment has wide-reaching implications. And we need to be mindful that any time we are taking something unjustly that is not ours to take, we are stealing. And it happens in a myriad of little ways, ways that seem so insignificant, but are nonetheless a serious violation of God's law. I have to confess, this past week, I was at home for lunch one afternoon. I had just finished my lunch and was looking for something sweet, And I'm not making this up. I had been working on this sermon all morning. I was still thinking about it. And I caught myself sticking my hand in one of my kids' Halloween buckets to take some candy. And I stopped and I thought, that isn't mine. I'm stealing even as I'm working on a sermon about the Eighth Commandment. But we can easily justify it, right? My kids don't need that candy. It's actually for their good, for me to eat it instead of them. I'm just taking one for the team. There's way more than they can eat, too. They wouldn't mind if I took a piece. They wouldn't even know or miss the candy I took. All of these thoughts start running through my head. But here is a simple reality. That candy wasn't mine. They worked hard for it. And I didn't ask to have any. Clearly, though, It is my responsibility not to let my children eat a bucket full of candy. So you might think it's just a silly illustration, but we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Office supplies at work, who's going to notice, right? A CD that a friend loaned us that we proceeded to copy onto our computer and then onto all of our devices. The The money for music doesn't even go to the artist anyhow, right, though? Expensive computer software that we found pirated and available online for free, but software is ridiculously overpriced, right? A towel from a hotel. Didn't I pay for that by paying over $100 to stay for just one night? 
And how many of us as students stole homework answers from our friends or presented ideas in papers that were not our own? The list could go on and on of the little things, but it isn't just the little things that we are stealing, is it? Racking up debt that we do not intend to pay back is also theft. And we are seeing this at unprecedented rates in the area of educational debt alone. One in five Americans now carry student loans to the tune of $1.47 trillion in rising. And even as more and more students take out exorbitant amounts of money to go to school, there's a rising movement for student loan forgiveness. In other words, people are borrowing money with a promise that they will repay it with the agreed-upon interest, and they are now demanding that this debt be forgiven. Dearly beloved, this is theft. Anytime we borrow money and do not intend to repay it or are not faithfully trying to repay it, we are stealing. Many of us at Covenant probably don't have student loans, but we might have credit card debt, a car note, a house note, various other loans or bills that we have accrued for various other goods and services, if we're not paying on these things, then we are violating the Eighth Commandment. And we might have a lot of ways that we justify ourselves that it is not theft, like telling ourselves that we really aren't taking from our neighbor because we owe it not to an individual but to a wealthy, impersonal institution. The fact that our debt is to an institution or business does not relieve our guilt, though. It is still a violation of the Eighth Commandment. But while we're talking about borrowing money, usury, which is loaning money at outrageous rates, is also theft. Scripture does not mince words about usury. It is a great injustice in God's eyes. It is a practice that God hates because it is an affront to caring for the poor and downtrodden among us. That does not mean that the practice of collecting interest in and of itself is forbidden in Scripture. In fact, Jesus teaches a parable about gaining interest on and thus multiplying what has been entrusted to our care. But taking advantage of the poor is a very serious violation of the law of God given in Scripture. I once had a lady come into a church I was serving looking for assistance, and she shared a story with me about how she was about to have her car repossessed. It was her only means of getting to work, which was her only means of income. She had missed last month's car payment because she had missed some work with an illness and also had some medical expenses from that previous month. And when I sat down with her and began looking at her bills, I was shocked by what I discovered. Even though she had been faithfully paying on her vehicle, with the exception of that previous month, she owed a good deal more on her vehicle than she had even borrowed. How is that even possible, I wondered. I was sickened to learn that her interest rates were so outrageous that she could continue to make monthly, minimum monthly payments on this vehicle and never really own it. And it wasn't like she was driving a nice vehicle. Dearly beloved, businesses that are preying on the poor or anyone by loaning money at unjust rates are immoral. And we as Christians should stand against these sort of practices and should certainly never participate in them. And as we think in this direction, 
We must also acknowledge that it isn't just us as individuals who violate the Eighth Commandment. It is also businesses and institutions and even the government. As the Heidelberg Catechism states, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. Therefore, a business that is practicing false advertising is using deceptive packaging, is price gouging, is using intellectual property without permission, is manipulating securities by providing false information, is hiding losses and offshore accounts, is committing theft. These sort of practices have become so common and so sophisticated that we don't even recognize it as theft anymore. It's just business, right? A biblical worldview says otherwise, though. And sometimes businesses are stealing from their own employees by not providing payment for overtime, by demanding longer hours than contracts allow, or even not providing benefits that were agreed to. This doesn't just apply to businesses, as I indicated a moment ago, though. When the government misuses tax dollars, it is theft. When the government is racking up national debt, it does not have a plan to repay. It is debt. It is theft. When the government is taking money from a program like Social Security that people have paid into and using that money for other things, it is theft. But here's the thing. There are people behind these business decisions, these institutional decisions, these government decisions who are accountable to God for their decisions. Therefore, we should not only be holding our elected officials accountable for these actions and demanding economic transparency and fiscal responsibility, but we as Christians should not be participating in leadership roles in any of these sort of activities, whether as business owners, institutional administrators or board members, or elected or appointed officials. God will judge individuals and institutions for injustice but since we're talking about the government and businesses let's confess something it isn't just the government who's stealing from us is it and can I ask you something are you accurately and honestly reporting your income on your taxes all of your income how many of you are reporting what you bought online and did not pay taxes on yet Dearly beloved, Jesus said to render unto Caesar what is his. We have a Christian obligation to pay our taxes in an honest manner, even if we don't agree with how the government is handling the money entrusted to it. And if we do not pay our taxes honestly and entirely, we are violating the eighth commandment. Let's confess something else while we're at it. Even as businesses and institutions are so often stealing from us, It isn't just office supplies that we're taking from them as our employers, is it? If we're paid by the hour, are we accurately logging our hours? Are we misusing company time for personal reasons by checking our personal email, watching television on our phones, playing on social media, taking coffee breaks too often, etc.? 
Because what we find is that it isn't just our money or material goods that are stolen. Time might be stolen more than anything else. And perhaps the most valuable resource we are entrusted with by God is our time. So finish the statement, time is money. Are you stealing your employer's time? But let me go ahead and draw this connection for us, even though Pastor John will be preaching more fully on this next Sunday, Lord willing. Even as your time belongs to your employer when you are at work, your time never really belongs to you at all. It belongs to the Lord. So let me ask you this. Are you stealing the time the Lord has entrusted to you? You see, whether we think about it or not, every decision we make about how we spend our time is a value decision, just as it is with our money. If I I decide to spend my limited monetary resources on one thing, this almost always means that I'm deciding not to spend it on something else. If I decide to buy a certain house, it might mean that I can't have the new car I wanted. But this is even more true with how we spend our time because our time is even more limited than our money. All of us only have 24 hours a day. This means when I make a decision about how I'm going to spend my time, I am simultaneously making a decision not to spend it on other things, whether I realize it or not. By being here this morning, we have said that worship is more important, is more valuable than relaxing at home or going shopping or watching television or playing golf. Every decision we make with our time is a value decision. Dearly beloved, I don't need to tell you that the world is constantly vying for our resources, particularly our money and our time. It's putting before us lots of good ways to spend these resources. But let me ask you this. What is the best? What is the best use of these most precious resources entrusted to your care? Are you devoting yourself to God and his people in the way you ought? Or are you giving him and his church what is left over of yourself? Are you just tacking God on at the end after you've attended to all that you have deemed is important? Dearly beloved, our decisions reveal where our hearts lie. And the hard truth might be that we have placed a lot of things before the Lord, a lot of good things, our families, our friends, our work, our leisure, And so we might just look back at our lives and realize that these good things have crowded out using our time and money in ways that honor the Lord. Don't be mistaken, though. We are accountable to God with how we use our resources. And the Lord instructs us in his holy word to number our days aright. We are to use our resources wisely, focusing first on God's kingdom. And as we think about this, let's do this with the proper perspective. We don't want to begin to believe that the Lord is being overbearing in his claim on our lives. Here is the reality. It isn't just that he created us. We aren't just accountable to him as his creatures, but we are all in debt up to our eyeballs before the Lord because of our sin. 
We are constantly stealing what is his. His time, his money, his fame, his glory. In the vastness of what we owe, the Lord can never be made up. Our sin has made us all bankrupt before the Lord, and we cannot earn his favor. But praise be to God that our debt has been fully paid by Jesus Christ, who came to earth to freely give himself away, to freely give himself up for our sake. He gave himself up as a ransom for our sins that what was his might be reclaimed by his precious blood. He gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul tells us, since we have received new life in Jesus Christ, since we have been set free from our debt to sin, let us live in that newness of life and gratefully and joyfully follow Jesus' example. As Paul instructs the Ephesians, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Dearly beloved, I am that thief. You are that thief. By God's grace, we've been redeemed in Christ and are called no longer to steal, but to give ourselves away to him and to our neighbor, to the glory of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as the great hymn says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. So Lord, we do pray that we would, as we meditate on your goodness for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would allow that to bind us to you, to repent of our sin to seek to honor you in all that we do with our time and our money and every other resource you've entrusted to our care. Lord, may what we do be for the good of our neighbor, for the upbuilding of your church, and for the glory of your name, for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe.